we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On this segment of Buffalo What's Next, Professor Joe Stallman with us. Uh, research assistant professor at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Buffalo. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jay. I also mentioned that you're also the director of the Seneca Iroquois Museum as well, right? I continue to work for Seneca Nation, but I uh, transitioned from the museum over to uh, TIPO, which is uh, Tribal Historic Preservation. Okay. And so within that role, I work on a number of projects for the nation, anything from doing basic historic preservation to like doing roadside signs, you know, the historical marker kind of stuff. I'm glad you brought that up about the historic preservation. We're getting a little off the topic, but I think at the same time, I'd like to explore this just for a moment. You're talking about the signage that you see around, for example, in the Salamanca area Mm -hmm. along uh, Interstate 86 now that Mm -hmm. uh, have they're utilizing in an indigenous language to to introduce us to these different right that's the type of work that a historic right. preservation officer would do right and what i'm curious about is it's interesting to see that the nation is doing that obviously mm-hmm. the input is there is that something that's being embraced by by residents as well uh, I think so. And in my work and my day to day work, you know, before we started talking this morning, you know, when we were getting to know each other, I told you that I travel around uh, western New York. Right. And so for uh, the Seneca uh, historic area includes the eight counties of western New York from the Genesee River to the Erie uh, to the er- Lake Erie. Right. And so uh, I'm always meeting uh, folks in historic societies. The, the, you know, people come to my talks in these small towns. Uh, I go to local universities, and there's a lot of engagement. There's a lot of awareness. Uh, a, a lot of awareness has been brought to me, too, because, you know, when we were talking earlier, I was telling you that I'm a transplant back to the region. Right. And so I have to uh, go through my own learning, too, right? I have to learn local culture. I have to learn local histories. And so when I go and talk and share, people share back. And so people really are engaged, and people really do care about their home, I feel. does It, it must be an encouraging development. Uh, yeah. But, you know, for me, uh, I do what I love, and I've been doing it now for uh, three decades and so uh, I only find those people, right? So I'm in really a, a niche sliver of life. Sure. And so for me, the people who come to my talks are the people who are interested in history and the past and the future and all of that type of stuff, that life stuff, right? Yeah. And so for me, uh, I don't really encounter the people who don't care about <laughs> history, right? Right, right, right. So it's really, I, I'm sure there's a, well, you know what? If I were to do metrics, right, of my talks, I would have uh, the very young there or elderly, you know, middle aged to elderly. And so there is a missing demographic in my talks. And I would say from the ages of late teens to the 40s, 
I would like to see those people show up at my public talks more often, I think. It's interesting that we were talking about history and we were t touching a little bit on local history. But the reason why we brought you here, we talk about the, the long buildup, was really to talk about something very historical, something very international that yeah. had tremendous impact on North America. Mm -hmm. The Doctrine of Discovery. Yes, let's, sir. Let's go into the terms a little bit here to start the Doctrine of Discovery. Tell me. Yeah, so that's really a translation, right, from uh, Latin to English. But it is. It's, uh, it's really a mandate from the Roman Catholic Church in 1493 saying that this imaginary line west of the uh, Azores and Cape Verde was now uh, under the uh, exclusive control of Spain. Pope Alexander made this decree, and he made this determination. And based on this decree, it gave them exclusive rights to land ownership, uh, control over people's souls. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's really a devastating thing. It, it altered uh, life as we know it. And so for me, it's really an interesting moment because we had um, someone on the other side of the world that we never encountered imposed this decree that... And had no idea of the indigenous people that were on the other side of the world. They didn't even know there was an other side of the world in 1493. Or just, we're just starting to discover no, no, that. No, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's that in itself is a complicated story, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think in 1493 they thought they were going to go off the edge of the world at that point. Right. But they thought the world was a little bit smaller in circumference. Sure, right? okay. Yeah. yeah. But from a legal, philosophical okay. standpoint, it encouraged and gave... a. A license oh. to commit genocide, mm. uh, impose uh, cultural norms on other peoples, it, uh, it uh, determine uh, who has rights to life. That still affects us now. Uh, being an indigenous person, you know, uh, our connections to life, uh, we see everything having a, a life force of its own. And so trees have a life force and the grasses and the fruits and the birds, you know, everything has souls and its own life forms. And so we have this decree where this uh, one person said that all of these other persons had dominion over all life. And so from that moment forward, we see this interesting march and in how we have all of these different philosophies that are actually fed into this concept that came from the other side of the world. It's really a heavy thing to yeah. me. Right? Yeah, and it, you know, it, I, I like the way you framed that about how there's that indigenous view, like you said, the trees, mm -hmm. the water, mm -hmm. the birds are all just as important. And yet now there's this, again, decree from somewhere across the world that is going to have centuries of impact on people. Yeah. And with, like you said, still is felt today. 530 years, right? You know, I started thinking about it legally, Jay. Yeah. Like, what does this mean legally? And so, you know, when talking to your producer on the phone, I was like, you know, this is a lot of speculation going into this talk with you today. Yes. And he said, that's fine. And I'm a dreamer and we can go down that route politically. Uh, what the decree, this repudiation does for us, it creates a third space where we get to talk about this again and we get to renegotiate uh, what does that mean to everything that's happened in the last 530 years. And trust me, indigenous peoples are very intelligent and very savvy. 
And a, a lot of folks are probably already all over this thinking about court cases and uh, how do we inhabit this third space to begin talking about the past. And I can take this down uh, a lot of fantasies and talk about things. But I also think it's really important right now to think about what your governments can do. And I'm, what I mean by your governments, I mean your state governments, your federal governments, not only here in the United States, but over in Canada as well. Because now we have this repudiation from one of the largest and strongest religious institutions in the world saying, hey, we're so sorry, uh, we seek forgiveness. And so as a result of this, all of your riches and all of your successes has a culture and has a country and has a state comes from our dispossession of those rights. And so this becomes an, a prime and a, an awesome opportunity for your governments to come forward and say, not by the letter of the law, but from the, the, the well-meaning of our hearts to come to you and seek, uh, how can we begin to repair some of this? Just to uh, clarify for those who are joining us right now, we're talking with Joe Stallman uh, from uh, from the Department of Anthropology at the University of Buffalo. And Professor Stallman, uh, we brought him in to also talk about what came from Pope Francis just recently. Mm -hmm. You, you uh, uh, alluded to it there for sure, but Pope Francis, like you said, repudiated mm -hmm. this decree from mm -hmm. 530 years ago that has had tremendous impact. And maybe just we'll take it through his evolution to a certain extent. He was in Canada last year. Uh, yes. And this is where a lot of this... I think kind of originated from right that you know there were you know the, the the residential school controversy in Canada it was just even before that okay this has been building up in Canada at least from my knowledge for 10 years and I'm probably wrong it's probably even older than okay. my awareness of this but uh you know, over the years, I have seen a variety of documents coming from pan-Indigenous organizations in Canada where they were asking for uh, reconciliation from the Roman Catholic Church, and it had a whole number of uh, talking points. And one of them was the repudiation of the doctrines of discovery because it's the foundation to Western law, to a lot of Western law. And it's really an interesting thing because at this point, Jay, it becomes kind of self-feeding. And so it's a decree that comes from the Roman Catholic Church, which becomes uh, uh, legislated into state laws and federal laws, right, uh, across North America. But we also see it being used in other colonial settings throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. And so wherever the British crown was, they actually turned back to the court cases in the United States to use to justify their ongoing colonization in other places such as Africa and Asia. Isn't that quite interesting? And so this whole thing is starting to weave into itself over the uh, over two centuries where it becomes, uh, people begun, begin to really believe it's really something from God, right? Sure. Right? Because it's kind of self-feeding this at this point, you know? And so the Americans talk about it, and then the British will talk about it somewhere else, and then it'll be referenced back. And right. it's a, yeah, and you as you mentioned about uh, American law, what, it was in eighteen twenty three, the Supreme Court case, uh, Judge Marshall, Justice mm -hmm. Marshall, who <laughs> mm -hmm. you know is considered to be maybe the the great jurist of early America. He had the ruling on on this the, the case, what Johnson versus McIntosh, basically gave legitimacy in the you know, in the United States. Uh, to this. We have to go back further. Okay, right? please. 
Okay, so let's go back to uh, Pope Alexander. He did it in 1493. About 50 years later, it was actually repudiated by the church, but it was already institutionalized throughout the world okay. that they kept it going. And that's how it became formatted into, uh, into law, into uh, the foundations of colonies and then later nation states. And then the first instance of it being used in the United States is actually 1792 by Thomas Jefferson. He used it as the foundation of international law, and thus it applied to U.S. law. And that's the foundation that Johnson, Marshall, Marshall uses, uses in the Supreme Court. And that's how it's been carried forward because it's, always, it's, it's continuously used. It was used again in uh, 2005 in the city of Sherrill versus the Oneida Indian Nation. Uh, Ginsburg, she was uh, the, the leading dissent on that opinion, and she said that uh, she used the, the doctrine of discovery in her first footnote. She makes other points that I kind of agree with, okay. but that's not the point of this conversation, right. right? But she does refer to the doctrine of discovery, so it is still part of U.S. law. And isn't it interesting to, to as you mentioned, Thomas Jefferson, mm -hmm. this is a man who's credited with being part of the Age of Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. and Yeah, he was pretty secular, right? And so for him to keep uh, referring back to uh, God's law or these religious decrees, it makes me wonder how selective people are and what they choose to use to support things that they want. That's, wow. <laughs> Joe, you're giving me a lot to go on here, that's for sure. Joe Stallman is with us, Dr. Joe Stallman from... Uh, uh, the UV uh, Department of Anthropology with us, and we're having uh, quite a conversation about the doctrine of discovery and its uh, its impact of how things have really played out since then in, in so many different ways. But I like the idea of, of, of conversation, and you've used the word, you know, I think, imagination and, and maybe fantasy before about mm -hmm. it. Speculation. How, how can, so let's speculate then. How can this conversation look? What can come of it what what do you think about that so uh this is fact-based so uh what could come out of it is uh did you notice in the news around january new york state uh helped return a thousand acres to the onondaga it, i believe it was maybe honeywell or one of those mm -hmm. types of corporations okay. uh, they had to remediate some land and uh new york state uh helped facilitate that transfer of the thousand acres back to the Onondaga. Okay. And that was a reconciliation. That was a peaceful moment. That was a moment where you saw two entities who are uh, been historically like within some kind of uh, battle or some kind of uh, friction, right? Where you saw them come together and there was there was a healing moment. And I uh, for me, I still uh, in my in my day-to-day -day jobs, you know, I do talk to Onondaga representatives uh, that was really uh, a moment that really gave them a boost when they needed it, you know. And it really has improved working relationships. You know, I'm looking from an outsider in, sure. right, Jay? Right. And from what I'm seeing, it's been a really positive thing for that community in New York State to go into. And why can't we continue to do it with other communities? You know, along Long Island, there's two indigenous communities with a very limited land base. And they have been there since time immemorial. And that's one of the things that New York State could help uh, repair that relationship is by helping them acquire more ancestral lands. 
So that, there's a start. There. What about here in Western New York? Again, are there? I mean, off, right off the top of your head, then, as you look around, and you're probably a good person to talk about this in the sense, like you said, you're back here in recent years, just relearning or learning the history, mm-hmm. seeing it for yourself, traveling across the eight counties of Western New York. Where could maybe we have starting points? What what issues here in our area could we find? starting points uh, in this kind of conversation. There's a ton, right? So right now, uh, this part of the world is about to go into several uh, anniversaries. So we got like the uh, the Erie Canal coming up. Uh, we have the 250th year of the American Revolution coming up. And so these become uh, spaces where we get to address this and maybe find ways to uh, 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 find peaceful ways of addressing things. But there is a lot that we can do. Right. And there's a lot of restorative justice out there. And New York State has created this legislation through the Bond Act for restorative justice. And I, in my opinion, in the job that I do in my day-to-day, I think this is a great place where New York State and the nations can be begin working uh, using some of that Bond Act. And, you know, it doesn't just stay with the nations. It spreads. It goes to all populations within the state, right? Of course. It, and so everyone benefits. We're talking with uh, Joe Stallman. Dr. Joel Stallman uh, with the uh, Department of Anthropology at the University of Buffalo. With us, in, as he just mentioned it, the Doctrine of Discovery. We, we've uh, had this conversation go in a lot of different directions here, but uh, I think informative in a lot of ways and also I think hopefully uh, engaging as well. Um, what about this type of history, though? Uh, how about even for you, your understanding of it, how it came about for you as you, I mean, you got... A couple of master's degrees. You got a, a doctorate as well. How about for you? How did this all come for you? How? At what time did you discover the doctrine of discovery? You know, uh, history is not a conspiracy. And so for me, growing up, I have always been interested in anything indigenous, First Nations, uh, original peoples. And so uh, I, I, I'm a lifelong learner. And so for me, this was always there in front of my face. And so for me, uh, growing up in America, because I did grow up in a a lot of different places where there isn't much of an indigenous presence, and being in those places, I guess I was a little self-aware where I kind of understood that uh, these things didn't happen in isolation because my traumas and the things that are triggering me in my present are part of a long line of historical events that go all the way back to 1492. And you don't separate them by bolded subheadings in a book because you don't tease that apart. It is a continuous action that's been affecting us. And so for me, I just couldn't understand why the larger world didn't understand how this injustice uh, was continuing to happen because we do have all of these injustices, right? Because the doctrines of discovery, what they did, they did more than just uh, affect international law. They affected everything. They, it, you know, this doctrine actually led to something else. How, who had a soul and who didn't? Who was a human being and who wasn't? Who was freed and who was enslaved? And so this doctrine has really deep and far-reaching uh, implications here that we have to address. Most certainly. And as you start talking about, like you said, the enslaved, those who were considered not to have souls. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 that as you're saying that, it opens up so many 
realities and of... And we have to think about this in the biggest, broadest strokes as possible, right? And so, like, I'm going back to the Pope. He really set us up in a third space here where we get to generate new conversations that we've never had before. So you're encouraged by the, by the Pope in Heck doing yeah, this? yeah, I am. At I the, am. At the same time, you know real politics, and you... You it's hear the new, you hear the news like I hear the news on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Is enough? Are enough people going to embrace this? No, to make a difference, it, it requires those who care to go out and do stumping. We have to stump. We have to talk about it. We have to create opportunities to invite people to our spaces to talk about these moments. You know, we all share the one planet. We have nowhere else to go. You know, people are hopeful about Mars or something, but <laughs> it seems to be pretty dusty and red, <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm banking on Earth here, right, and right. I need to live with you, Jay, and we need to live with all of our neighbors. And the only way to do this is through peace. And so we have an opportunity, and we have to create moments where we embrace everybody and not separate but in, be inclusive, right? I'd like to think that the people who listen to this program share that sentiment. I think so. It's a way. It's why I agreed to be on it, actually. Well, and thank you for for agreeing to be here with us. Let's talk about then some stump speech points, some bullet points. Where can we go? How can we take this? Help us through this. You've thought about this, like you said. This is a continue. This isn't just one subheading, and maybe I'm looking for the simplification of it all. But it's a lot of thinking, mm-hmm. and it's not easy to boil it down into 30-second sound bites. No, it's not. Uh, you know, part of it for me is uh, how do we just kind of begin rectifying some of the past wrongs? Uh, we have ongoing issues, you know, uh, health. Uh, we have mental health concerns. This is just across the board, right? Understood. Uh, I, I'm a human being, and uh, I, I just don't think about indigenous peoples. I think about everyone. You know, everything that happens to everyone kind of affects me. And uh, I don't know. You, you know, it's it's really what you want to, you know, for me to stump. I'm going to stump for what I want, and that's to have a, an equal voice in the history. I want indigenous peoples to be recognized for our contributions to humankind. I want us, t- I, I, I want our knowledges to be understood as sciences because people don't realize how we lived with Mother Earth for so long and it's based on a relationship. And it, it doesn't seem to get across. And so for me, that's the space that I want to occupy. But I know you have your own issues, and so you can use this as a moment to stump your own thing, right? Or whatever your community finds important. And so for me, you know, I think this is a great time for Buffalo to address racial concerns, right? And you can do that as a city. You can do it as a county. You can do it by your town. You can do it by your block. And so, you know, it's really not up to me to tell you how to do this. But for me, I will continue to do my my little spaces. I occupy some tiny little bubbles, and I will keep moving in those circles trying to make the change where I need to see it. And so for me, I want to see it change in, like, historic preservation and cultural preservation. Because within those uh, legislations, 
they're out to care for the things that I care about and you care about, but we come about it at different angles. And legislation sometimes is a little myopic, and it comes at different time periods, and it needs to be addressed and updated to fit our current needs. Don't you hear this a lot with other things going on? <laughs> yes. Well, guess what? Cultural and historic issues need the same kind of treatment. We need to update things. We need to modernize because when we do that, we begin, we begin to appreciate all peoples as human beings with something to offer the world. Uh, Dr. Joe Stallman, I really appreciate you joining us on Buffalo What's Next. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me here today, Jay. It's a real Real pleasure. pleasure. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. More to come right after this on WBFO. Check out the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. Ellicottville is a town of variety, not only in what they have to offer, but the people. The Burlington community is uh, becoming increasingly multicultural, and the library is reflecting that. Parks and playgrounds have been what makes the town of Tonawanda a great place to grow up. The series began in 2003, but it's making its debut on YouTube now. Although some of the businesses and people may have changed over the years, the spirit of these wonderful towns remain the same. We just didn't realize what we had in our own backyard. We need the next generation to protect it and carry on. Learn about Jamestown, Burlington, Welland, East Aurora, and more than a dozen other beautiful communities in our region by watching the Our Town series now on YouTube. I, w- I would live there. <laughs> I'm Angelie Preston, and on today's show, we have Julia Stevens. She's an activist, and she's also the founder of the Topsy Curvy Movement. Julia, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here with you. We're excited, too. And what I want to know is, what is the Topsy Curvy movement? I've seen it on social media. It, it looks like it celebrates bodies of all of all sizes. So our movement is basically focused in body liberation. We want to use burlesque as a vehicle to be able to share the artistry and um, the performance art of black femmes, people that identify as um, queer in some capacity, people that have experienced multiple forms of marginalization. We can kind of share in a solidarity together, encourage other people um, to either participate in their own body liberation or to celebrate ours with us and um, that's what our movement is it's a movement led by love so what uh, led you to start topsy curvy um i had done some organizing around a bunch of different issues whether it be like housing justice reproductive justice and um, i was also working for a domestic violence shelter and i had made these connections with like different artists in buffalo and one of them was dj Lil gabby and uh we developed a friendship and at one point she was like we should do a show together. And I had never done anything like that. I was out here leading the chance. But um, I was like, yeah, that'd be cute. But I guess, like, my organizer roots, unignorable, unignorable. I'm bringing the protest to every party. Yes, and (laughs) let's talk about your organizer roots because we met a few years ago at a women's march movement. And tell us, how, how did you get started in activism? 
Um, well, honestly, like a lot of people, I became super energized in 2016. Um, I had just had a baby and with the election, like it felt like the world around me was crumbling. And I've always been like a social, a person who uh, finds social issues important. Um, but at that time I started being the girl that was going to the actions. I was going to, um, protests and attending, just being like a person in the crowd. And then in 2020, my family had suffered a very tragic loss and the response that we got from the community the response that we got from law enforcement to me just seemed like unacceptable and at this point I had gone to these different actions I had seen local organizers in Buffalo you know I had seen India I had seen Jillian I had seen um, the tantric mystic lead all of these things and I was and, and get people to care about important issues that seemed otherwise like unimportant to community so I was like I want to do that. I want people to care about the fact that a young black woman was murdered in her home in front of her children. And that really led me to be an organizer and learn how intersectional all of these issues are. You touched on um, uh, the young black woman who was murdered in her home. Um, if it's okay, can you just elaborate a, a little more? Do you feel comfortable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I will say it's one thing that Topsy Curvy has really made possible is to continue advocating for Mariah Wilson. Um, I think that her story should never be ignored because there are so many aspects to it. In September of 2020, Mariah was getting ready. She was about a week out from moving out of her home in downtown Niagara Falls on LaSalle Avenue. And her home was dilapidated. She had an, a horrific slumlord who had left. The home had been broken into a year before. So the door was completely busted down and never repaired. And Mariah had moved a refrigerator in front of the door, like as an, her only form of keeping the outside out of her house. And obviously acknowledging the conditions were just unsafe. Like she needed to get her and her kids out of there. And the week before she was able to do that, somebody broke into her home. They had knowledge of the setup and the fact that it would be easily accessible. And um, she was murdered while her children were in the next room. Putting the refrigerator in front of the in front of the door for protection because the locks were inadequate. Did she let her um, her landlord know? And if so, what was what was the response? She did let her landlord. So that wasn't the only issue, and this was also like a culmination of things leading up to why she was leaving. Um, Mariah, and and the other thing is the housing justice of it all. Right, Mariah had expressed to her landlord multiple problems. The and it wasn't just the locks were in adequate there was no door like there was no that was one thing that I saw on social media well why didn't she just go get a lock why didn't she a lot of people flipped it on her why didn't she just do x y and z well of course the landlord wasn't going to make repairs she had refused to pay rent that was his that was his claim I don't know if that's true or not but I would also refuse to pay rent if there were holes in my walls if there was broken glass that had never been cleaned up from stuff that had nothing to do with me whether it be weather or whatever like there were so many she had unusable plumbing and then obviously her house is accessible to whoever so the landlord was definitely aware and, and in terms of the door situation we knew that because she had filed a police report from the house being broken into so the landlord knew that these repairs needed to happen and I think just because 
the relationship maybe he didn't feel like he had to but this this same landlord had a history of leaving properties like that and he's not the only one that's not an uncommon occurrence especially in the city of Niagara Falls they buy these like barely livable inhabitable properties and they overcharge vulnerable populations like a single mother who works two jobs and you know for the most part she wasn't really there but when she was it was unlivable and she really had no other options because also it's close to our family it's close to her support system so to think that like she was willing to pack up all of her stuff and leave the state just to maintain her safety just to be able to provide an adequate life she should have been able to do that here and I think that that says a lot about the housing situation, the housing crisis that we have, um, not just uh, here in Buffalo, but in America, where, you know, you touched on it, where, you know, these these landlords, they take they take advantage of vulnerable populations of people who, you know, are on a fixed income. And it's it's like they mistreat them even more by, you know, just not not doing what they should be doing as a landlord and the tenant suffers and the tenant feels like they don't have any rights, but they absolutely do have rights. Absolutely. And I think also like that's where the intersectionality comes in is like, here's this violent crime against a black woman, but it's also reproductive justice because the ability to be able to care for your children and for your family is a reproductive justice issue. The ability to have a home, a safe, livable place, that is a housing issue and becomes a reproductive issue. Like these things and being able to safely live somewhere is a, a body liberation issue. Being able to have autonomy over your person and where you live and know that people can't just walk up into your dwelling and do something harmful to you that is like maintaining your personhood and I think that that's why like it's super important for us to combine all of these things and look at them kind of generally because you can you can see where so many issues lie what have you learned from uh, your activism that you've done here locally I have learned that anger is a great catalyst to be able to get you energized, right? Like rage can really push you to step outside of your comfort zone. It can empower you to to use your voice, but it can't lead you. And once the rage settled, that's when I was able to do like real organizing. Because to me, real organizing is building a community, right? Building a community of people who share the same ideas, share the same values. You work together to help each other, to help each other thrive, and it's mutual. You're doing it just for the sole purpose of seeing your people thrive. So when I prioritize the love and let the rage take a back seat, because it's still there, I'm still mad. But when I was able to prioritize love, the community building aspect became so much easier because, first of all, people wanted to be there. They want to be a part of something that is comforting um, and that isn't scary. Like, I think a lot of times, even when you are organizing, a lot of that stuff is scary. Being either whether it's out in the street or it's having really difficult conversations about harm in our community, like that stuff can be traumatizing and scary. Whereas we can talk about these issues in a way that's loving to each other and ourselves, and that's community building. Let's let's um, pivot for just a minute. Sure. I want to get back to Topsy Curvy. Yeah. So, Topsy Curvy 
burlesque founded by a black woman. You had it. Talk about the diversity of the performers in Topsy Kirby. So we try to emphasize people that are experiencing like the, some of the most extreme points of marginalization. So we bring it and all of them identify as black femmes. Um, so people that are either living, you know, obviously in black femme bodies, trans bodies, people who have differently abled bodies, um, and just basically, and who also acknowledge that what we are doing is a practice in the sex work industry. So people that share this common understanding stand in solidarity together and can come together and just thrive in a safe space and be the, the, the most themselves. And your motto is pay black women. Period. <laughs> period talk about that um well i think especially in in any industry but in the sex work industry we see a lot of different pay disparities we see uh how much harder it is for certain people to participate in safe practices and then also be paid adequately so i think it's really important to talk about those disparities and how important they are to body liberation to making sure that we are all on the same playing field and able to access the same type of resources the same type of care and have our needs met and in order for us to do those things we need to be paid babe so topsy kirby you you practice body liberation right and then you also mentioned sex work mm -hmm. do you think that we are living in a time where sex work is becoming less stigmatized? Um, in certain ways, yes, and in certain ways, no. Like, I think that sexuality is always going to be a target for those who want to control people's autonomy. So the way that we practice sexuality in any capacity there's always going to be pushback, especially if you're doing it out loud. Like it's such, you know, sex is traditionally like a thing that we keep in the bedroom. We don't talk about it, but we're all doing it. So um, in certain ways, I think that, yeah, there's always going to be like limits there. But I, I do also see because of the Internet and because of the ways that we can connect with each other that we haven't been able to do before we, the sex workers, are destigmatizing these things. And other people are seeing how lucrative it can be. And also with the introduction of like an OnlyFans space or even like a Pornhub space where you can navigate what content you're sharing. You don't have to rely on going outside of your home and working with any and whoever. You can make money practicing in an industry that you enjoy practicing in safely. So that does kind of destigmatize it. But burlesque is a great example. And it's one of the reasons that I really wanted Topsy Kirby to not just be a show, it could have been a variety hour or whatever. But it's important to call it burlesque because historically, burlesque tries to remove itself. This is not sex work. This is a strip tease and it's performance art. But I think it's so important to see like, okay, burlesque is the accepted, you know, you can, you could take a date to a burlesque show and people are going to think it's cute. But if you take your date to the strip club, they might look at you a little sideways depending on who you with. So it, it's important to put those two things together because they both hold the same amount of value, right? Like if you're a burlesque dancer who's, you know, out there exposing yourself, participating in a striptease, you deserve just as much respect as somebody who is in the strip club, somebody who is letting people physically put hands on them. And and that deserves to be just as honored, just as respected, and quite frankly, 
those girls are athletes. <laughs> like the the work that they do, it is a form of performance art. You can see the artistry in it. It's not something like, yeah, it's great and you're throwing your ones around, but this is really these girls put effort into it and they take bruises and they put themselves in danger working in late clubs and I just think that those two things, uh, burlesque and sex work, need to be synonymous with each other for destigmatization purposes. I don't know if that's a word. That is definitely a word. Okay, okay. Yes. But for those purposes, exactly, to to normalize it. And you've also mentioned um, off uh, in, in talks that we've had previously that Topsy Curvy is inclusive for everybody. So if you identify as straight, if you identify as gay, if you identify as queer, you have a place. You absolutely have a place. And I will say one of the cool things about Topsy Curvy, like we have our, our core people who, quite honestly, they just show up every time. And those are the people that obviously we prioritize, but we leave enough space for new people to come in. And we want to make sure that people who have never had a safe space to practice this work have the opportunity to do so in an environment that emphasizes consent. And that's stuff that you don't always see um, when you're when you're out in other sex work spaces, what has been the response from the community? Um, uh, I will say, it's the response has been um, two different things, right? You have people who see the work that they're that we're doing, and I think that they feel challenged by it. And it gives us the opportunity to let's have that talk. Let, let's open up that door. And uh, you also have people who are saying thank you so much for creating this space because there's not a ton of, like, l black lesbian spaces in, in this area. There's a few, like, deep cuts that if you know, you know. But aside from that, like, places that are explicitly saying, no, we are here for you. We want you to have a good time. We're doing this through your lens just as much as it is ours. And having people acknowledge that is like, oh, okay, we're doing it right. We get it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you're just listening, we are here with Julia Stevens. She is the founder of the Topsy Curvy Movement, a Black-owned, Black-led burlesque movement that celebrates body diversity, body liberation, and positivity. And stick with us. We're going to take a quick commercial break. This is Buffalo, What's Next? This is Buffalo, What's Next? Where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And thanks for joining us. I'm Angelie Preston, and we're here again with Julia Stevens. Uh, one of the things um, that we've also discussed um, has been um, mental health. I'm sure during the pandemic, mental health was a huge concern for everyone with us being locked down and our whole way of life just changing. But for Black women especially, can you talk about... Um, the stigma, the stigma surrounding black, uh, black women and black people seeking services for mental health. Because 
I feel as though in our community, and I don't know if you agree, but from what I've seen from my lens is that um, it's kind of looked down upon for us to see a therapist, see a counselor, see a doctor and have open discussions, especially among our black men. Do you do you feel that way or do you how what is your take on that? Absolutely. I do think that there is definitely a stigma. I don't know if it's it's a stigma or a fear or exactly what it is, but I do think that within the black community, there's a lot of ideas that are actively changing. I will say that, especially like in, in my family, considering what we've experienced, we all about the therapists over here. And maybe that's part of us like ending our own generational cycles. But I think about like my family previous to that and all those experiences they've had and definitely like they not going to talk to that lady. <laughs> that lady. <laughs> that lady. They they're not talking to that lady. And um I, I think that that exists. I I I think that there's a lot of reasons of why it could exist though. One of them is that you can go to a therapist. You know, I had the privilege of being able to shop around for therapists and like see somebody and not having access to proper health insurance, not having access to people who understand your lived experience. That's another thing. You can go to school, you can do all the trauma informed training. But until you live that experience, until you can move past the step of empathy to understanding, I think that that prevents people from opening up. It prevents them from being vulnerable because you're not going to get it anyway. And um, I, I, I think that that's part of it. At least for me, it definitely was. So um, with, uh, with therapy, um, you, you're in therapy, correct? Yeah, I'm in therapy. I see a counselor. Um, my daughter is six, and she sees a therapist. Um, and then I have custody of my cousin's daughter, and she also sees the same therapist as my daughter. So your daughter is six, and then uh, your cousin's daughter, which you could say is your is your child. I call her my bonus baby. Your bonus baby. Yes. Um, they are both in therapy. Talk about talk about that because um, when you when you told me about that, I was my eyes were open. I was like, huh, like like. The children are in therapy. Mm-hmm. So what 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 made you want to put your children in therapy? So Genevieve, my my six year old, um, over the summer back in June, I was in a really bad house fire and I had burned like over 30 percent of my body. I was in the ICU mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks. I was away from my daughter at the time. Me and her dad had a really tumultuous relationship. So it wasn't super easy for me to communicate with her. And on top of that, there was so much pain medication. I just, there was no way for me to adequately communicate with her. And when I got out of the hospital, I was in, on bed rest for a long time. And she's just looking at her mom. She she was a witness to the fire, so she had witnessed this horrible thing. And now she's seeing me in a way, in a, in a weakness that she has never seen me before. And to me, She's so empathetic, right? Like, she's my little nurse. She is staying with me. She's by my side. And she seems so happy. And I'm like, wow, my kid is so resilient. Like, she she is really taken. But then she would also say things that were showing me that she was having survivor's guilt. She would say, mommy, I wish it was me that got hurt. And, like, those are just not things you ever want to hear your child say. And I could also tell that she was having issues with feeling like she couldn't protect me. 
And like, girl, you're six. <laughs> like, I was going to say. That yeah. is not your job. And I realized in that moment, like as a mom, I was so overwhelmed. And I have really great support systems. But it was just something that was so like specific that all people could do was look at me and, you know, that's crazy. Like they didn't know how to comfort me. There was no advice to be given because until you burn alive in front of your kid, like you can't really say how somebody should respond to that and um then my daughter had an issue at school during fire prevention week and uh, it was actually the school that suggested she talked to a counselor and I was so thankful because like I said to me she she seemed like she was okay and she yeah she was making these little comments that at the time I didn't acknowledge as being survivor's guilt I just thought it was the way that she was processing the situation so um, they put me in contact with a clinic with Best Self, and um, I was able to get Genevieve in contact with a really great therapist, and that therapist has worked so well with Genevieve that when Jada had come into my home, um, I immediately, I, I knew what she had experienced, and I was like, yeah, you, you also, she hadn't received any long-term extensive mental health care since the loss of her mom. So that was like, I was like, girl, if you you come stay with me as long as you want. But if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. And she was more than willing to do that. And I think it's important to find a therapist that your kids are comfortable with. And, and that helped a lot. Do you, um, since uh, Jada and Genevieve have both uh, been in therapy, have you seen a difference? Oh, my gosh. When you see somebody you love hurting so deeply... And you don't know, like, I, you don't know what to do. To see the changes that have been made since therapy have, and it's, it's really just having somebody to talk to. The therapist just knows how to draw out certain things and how to help them understand things. And, you know, Genevieve going from, like, not being able to have a conversation without, really getting upset in regards to anything fire related or just the fear of like mom I don't want anything bad to now we can have these conversations in a way that her little mind can process when Jada came to me she was just so shy and like inside herself I would try to talk to her about hard things and like I could physically watch her retreating and now she's telling me things, she's opening up, she's being vulnerable, and she's really doing the hard work because that is not easy. When you have known nothing but inconsistency since losing your mom, opening up to somebody who could or could not be there in the future, like that is very difficult. And no matter how much I assure her, I'm not going anywhere, babe. It, it takes a lot for her to be able to believe that, and I can see it actively happening. I can see her seeing value in herself and that her feelings are important and deserving to be acknowledged. And like, that is, it's such a beautiful thing. You mentioned your daughter Genevieve's resiliency um, after, um, after your experience in the fire. And that made me think about how black women are labeled as resilient because we're strong. And, and does that, ever annoy you yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think it's very annoying and uh, 
the same thing with like being strong and you know black women are supposed to be resilient and you can't be those things without being vulnerable first you cannot be strong or resilient until you acknowledge the softest part of yourself the part that is hurting the part that has been denied care and that doesn't feel strong sometimes that can be a lot of nights crying in the bed sometimes that can be days without getting the right meal into your body like those those painful things you have to be able to go through and acknowledge that it's okay you are suffering and it's not okay but you'll be okay and then you can move yourself into strength but like to have to go from I'm suffering and I just got to thug it out I, I got to make sure the bills is paid I got to make sure the kids is fed I, I can't take time to acknowledge this within myself you just extend your suffering when you don't allow yourself to grieve whatever the situation is um, you you get stuck you get hard you you forget how to be loving to yourself and I think that that makes it hard to be loving towards others so I I do also kind of hate the resiliency thing but for lack of a better word you you're watching somebody and you're thinking it's I should say it, it was perceived resilience right I thought she was being strong. I thought she was bouncing back. And meanwhile, she's just smiling so she can get from one moment to the next. And that I, that's, in a way, I'm like, that's on me because that's what I was doing, right? <laughs> and I think that, like, society, they they have painted the the picture like oh black women are resilient, strong, and that's good and it should be celebrated. But that's not all that we are and to always have that label sometimes as you said can be annoying because then okay like there's already that trope in the media that black women are angry the angry black woman what about the happy black woman what about the the black woman who who experiences joy Absolutely. And I also think that it's very interesting how everybody wants to celebrate a strong black woman. But when they feel strong, when we feel strong as a black woman, you're getting a little aggressive. You might need to tone it back a little bit. You're getting a little too black. And like that. But, but didn't you just want me to be strong two seconds ago? I'm feeling strong now. What's up? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, Why does it switch up? And, and yeah, like it takes away space to just be a happy black woman or to just be a happy black person. Like that's why Topsy Curvy emphasizes so much having a safe space, because in this space we are practicing radical black joy, period, for us, by us. So we we need to protect that because yeah we are strong but we're strong in a lot of different ways we're also really soft we're joyful we're vulnerable we funny <laughs> we trying to have a Period. good time yeah <laughs> is there anything else that that you want to touch on that um that I didn't ask or didn't mention no and i i just want to say thank you so much for this opportunity because these are things that are really important to me and in the past the only ways that i've been able to talk about them is either a directly with my people through topsy curvy or b out in the streets screaming and no matter what you're kind of putting your body out there on the line but in a way you've created a safe space here for us to be able to talk about marginalized identities and body liberation and i am really honored to be here so thank you we're honored to have you, Julia. Julia Stevens, everyone. Thank you so much for being here, and we look forward to talking to you again. All right now. 
This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.